This is Knowledge History D&D. Episode 3, The Birth of the Fantasy Game. Part 1, Gygax and Arneson, meeting for the first time. In August of 1968, the International Federation of Wargaming held Gen Con 1 in Gary Gygax's hometown of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Gary was the primary coordinator for the event and spent his own money to rent the Horticultural Center for the day. During the event, Gary was inspired by the enthusiasm and innovation he saw from his fellow wargamers. One innovation that stood out to him was a game called Siege of Bodenburg. It was a medieval siege scenario. Count von Boden waits in his castle for a wagon train of supplies, but the suppliers and the castle are attacked by Huns and Turks. One player plays Count von Boden's troops, the other plays the Huns and Turks. The creator of the game, Henry Bodenstead, set up the game at Gen Con 1 to sell medieval miniatures that he had imported from Germany. His setup included an eye-catching miniature castle in the middle of the table, with a beautiful array of his imported German pewter miniatures all around. Gary was smitten by the look of Siege of Bodenburg. He also recognized there was innovation at play. Medieval wargames were not prevalent in 1968. This was one of the earliest rule sets for medieval miniature wargaming. From interviews with Gary, it's clear that Siege of Bodenburg was one of the inspirations for his later work. In the months after Gen Con, the periodicals praised the convention. In no time, Gary was getting mail asking about the next Gen Con. Over the next year, he would write columns in various wargaming periodicals, but he also started putting together games of his own design. Some were variants of existing games that he had published in fanzines. Others were attempts at commercial success. Between 1968 and 1969, Gary wrote and contributed to an astounding number of original games. These included Overlord, The Battle for France, which was a variant of Avalon Hill's D-Day. The game Arbella, which was based on Alexander the Great's invasion of the Persian Achaemenid Empire. The Caucasus Extension, based on Stalingrad, another Avalon Hill game. And War of the Empires, a revision of a science fiction game. He contributed to no less than nine games in these two years. As Gary was beginning to flourish as a game designer, he was also coordinating the second Gen Con. It was held in August of 1969 and was expanded to a two-day event. Just like the first year, it was held at the Lake Geneva Horticultural Center. This time, twice as many people attended. Gary was not only the primary organizer, but also a vendor. He put out a table to sell his Napoleonic variant of diplomacy, as well as other games he'd written over the past few years. In the midst of running Gen Con, Gary bumped into a 22-year-old Dave Arneson. Arneson was in the middle of a ship-to-ship -ship naval combat game at the time, but he stopped to talk. Arneson knew Gygax from his writings in the wargaming periodicals, and Gygax had heard of Arneson's activities in St. Paul. In this brief meeting, they found common ground in their shared interest of naval wargames. They also shared a passion for Avalon Hills Gettysburg. But what most intrigued Gary was when Arneson talked about a game named Bronstein, Bronstein was a medieval war game that Dave Arneson and Dave Wesley had been playing in St. Paul for more than two years. It was one of the only games Gary had heard of that was a medieval setting and could support more than two players. While Gary was curious, he didn't see a demo of Bronstein that day. 
Still, this meeting kicked off a relationship that would change both of their lives in big ways. You know, Gen Con is often thought of as the Dungeons & Dragons convention, and that's how I've always thought of it, uh, but it existed before D&D was created. It was actually the birthplace of D&D. Without the convention, Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax would not have met, and subsequently gone on to make D&D. That kind of surprised me a bit. I find it interesting that Gary was working just about every angle he could in the gaming world. He made games, he wrote articles about games, he corresponded in volumes that rivaled Alexander Hamilton and H.P. Lovecraft. He blazed his own trail. But in 1969, after years of doing so, he really wasn't better off financially. It was still a passion and a hobby, not a job. I guess I've always had a picture in my head that went something like this. Gary Gygax woke up one day in 1974 and said something like, If I make Lord of the Rings into a tabletop game, I'll make millions. But that's not how it went. Instead, he was focused on things that brought him joy, and eventually it worked out. That mentality and the positive feedback from his community seems to be what kept him going and working on things until it was his full-time job. Part 2. The Creation of Chainmail In early 1970, it was becoming common for gaming groups to name themselves. The local gamers of Lake Geneva, led by Gary Gygax, picked the name Lake Geneva Tactical Studies Association. Shortly after, they started going by the acronym LGTSA. Despite the overly official name, the association consisted of eight or so gamers that would play games in Gary's basement on most Saturdays. These included Gary, Rob Kuntz, his brother Terry, Ernie Gygax, Gary's oldest son, Jeff Perrin, Mike Reese, Leon Tucker, and Gary's childhood friend Don Kay. This group would sometimes make communal purchases. One such purchase was of a large number of medieval miniatures. Inspired by this purchase, member Jeff Perrin wrote a four-page rule set to allow the group to play large-scale medieval combat scenarios. Gary, who never missed an opportunity to collaborate or contribute to a new game, worked with Jeff Perrin to vet out these rules. In April of 1970, the two published LGTSA's Medieval Miniature Rules in the periodical Panzerfaust. While Gary was satisfied enough to publish these rules, he saw room for improvements, and throughout the next year, Gary and Perrin tested and polished the rules. Relatively few miniature medieval wargaming systems were around, and Gary saw that as an opportunity. But as one door opened on Gary, another one closed. In late 1970, Gary was fired from the job he had worked at for eight years. He had been an underwriter at an insurance company, and that job had paid the bills for his family and his hobbies. Sadly, it's possible that his obsession with wargaming contributed to the loss of his job. He was known to spend time at work typing up articles for periodicals and revising game rules. To add to their financial issues, the Gygax family was still growing. Mary Jo was pregnant with their fifth child, and now Gary was out of work. At the time, Gary wrote the following in Wargamer's newsletter. During this temporary forced vacation, I am working on a couple of board games for semi-commercial sales and trying to get some work in on miniature rules. 
Leading up to his unemployment, Gary had been corresponding with fellow IFW member Don Lowry. Don owned a mail-order hobby shop known as Lowry's Hobbies. He recently started a gaming branch, Guidon Games. Through his well-known persistence, Gary convinced Don to let him work at Guidon. Gary started at Guidon as editor of a series of games called Wargaming with Miniatures. To kick off the Wargaming with Miniatures series, Gary looked to the medieval miniature combat rules he'd developed with Jeff Parent. Gary put the final touches on the rules in early 1971 and published them with the official title Chainmail. Chainmail was around 60 pages long. It included rules for mass combat, one-on-one -on -one combat, and jousting. While Chainmail would later be the basis of D&D, at this point it was only a combat system. It still had more in common with Kriegspiel than Dungeons and Dragons. At the end of the Chainmail rules, Gary added a 14-page fantasy supplement. In later interviews, he called this supplement an afterthought. But in this afterthought, Gary promised players to be able to refight the epic struggles related by J.R.R. Tolkien, Robert E. Howard, and other fantasy writers, or devise your own world. The supplement also included Gary's first mention of what would become the role of Dungeon Master. Chainmail was released in March 1971 and quickly became the most successful game published by Guidon Games. With Gary's fantasy afterthought, it also became the first widely available fantasy war game. At $2 a copy, about $12 in 2017 dollars, the Gygax family was not making ends meet on chainmail money. As a result, Gary needed another job. He started repairing shoes in his basement. However, with this game, Gary had established himself as a successful game designer. I gotta say, Gary must have been a real risk taker at heart. If I were in his shoes, I would not have done what he did. He had five children, no job, and decided to fix shoes and write games to support his family. He must have known somewhere deep down that his passion was worth something in the world. Either that or he was legitimately crazy. One of the more interesting anecdotes I read about Gary was regarding his appearance. Before he lost his insurance job, he was a model Midwesterner. Slick back, dark hair, dark rim glasses, conservative dress, with a sizable but well-kept mustache. Once he started working from home, his appearance changed to the now famous Gary Gygax look. A beard, long hair, pulled back in a ponytail, and comfortable clothes and shoes. Additionally, he started smoking marijuana around this time, and that might explain a thing or two. Part 3. Ships and Jazz Between 1968 and 1972, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson kept in contact in a number of different ways. They both belonged to the IFW, they both attended Gen Con, and they corresponded with each other regarding games they were working on or playing. These games included Gary's Napoleonic Diplomacy 2, Arneson's Napoleonic Simulation Campaign, and their shared collaboration on a game called Don't Give Up the Ship. The latter was a miniature-based ship and fleet combat game set between the American Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. During their work on Don't Give Up the Ship, 
it quickly became apparent to Gary that Dave struggled with the written word. In Arneson's manuscripts, there were often misspellings, fractured sentences, and grammatical mistakes. However, these same manuscripts were full of innovation and creative ideas. Gary saw the beauty of Arneson's genius. A facade of unimportant mistakes would not dissuade Gary from working with Arneson on something as important as war games. In 1972, the two published the game Don't Give Up the Ship through Gary's relationship with Guidon Games. These rules included sections on sighting, special guns, weather, repairs, burning ships, water depth, and optional shot weight rules. It was a fully-fledged game in every way, and the duo was excited to reap the rewards of their collaboration. Unfortunately, Don't Give Up the Ship was not the commercial hit that Gary had with Chainmail. It did, however, solidify a good working relationship between Arneson and Gygax. In late 1972, Dave Arneson and Dave Migri made the long ride from St. Paul, Minnesota to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. They took the trip to visit Gary's gaming group and play a couple tabletop games. Dave Migri was a friend of Arneson's that had just recently published the board game Dungeon. During this visit, Dave Arneson showed off a medieval fantasy game of his own design he called Blackmore. Blackmore was Arneson's variation of the game Bronstein. And Bronstein was a game Arneson had mentioned to Gary three years previous, but had never shown Gary. In the time between, Arneson had adapted Gary's chainmail rules for Blackmore's combat. But what happened that night blew Gary's mind. That night, Arneson ran Blackmore for Gary, Don Kay, and a handful of other friends. Arneson narratively brought the players into a dank dungeon with all the swords, magic, and fantasy Gary had grown up reading in novels and pulp magazines. It was immersive, more so than any game the boys of Lake Geneva had ever played. While the game involved combat, that was only one aspect of it. Dave Arneson described their settings in depth and detail. He acted as more of a storyteller than an arbiter of rules. The players each controlled a single character instead of a regiment or an army, as was customary in most war games. As the players interacted with Dave's story, he would describe the outcome of their actions. The game felt more like improvisation than a game. This was jazz. Arneson sat in the middle of the game. He kept the story moving. He was like a band leader, setting the tempo and letting his fellow musicians riff off of his song. When conflict arose, they switched to the Chainmail's one-on-one -on -one combat rules. Instead of fighting each other, they fought enemies that Arneson controlled. To Gary, this was a mind-altering experience. Dave's liberal use of fantasy narrative and Gary's combat rules were the perfect combination of chewy and crunchy. Gary felt like he could see the parts falling into place, and he knew he had to be the one to make something out of this. When reading about this first game of what became D&D, it sounded exactly like every game of D&D I've ever played. This was a huge surprise to me. Dave Arneson effectively showed Gary Gygax a completed game of D&D. The rules weren't written, but the framework was there. They played D&D in Gary's basement in 1972, two years before the game would be officially published. It was as if the game was there all along, and just needed the right circumstances to allow it to be published. 
Next time on Knowledge History D&D, we follow the story of Dungeons and Dragons as it goes from a concept to a final product. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about our sources, the music in this episode, or the history of D&D, go to dungeonsandtangents.net. Script for this episode by Eric Dewhurst. Titles by Jen Kunrath. Thank you to Robert Sherman for keeping his seat warm.